0: It's a pleasure to be at this program with so many writers um, that, that I admire. Um, this morning I want to talk about um one of my favorite topics in creative nonfiction um and it's speculation and the necessity of speculation. And I began, I was talking um, where is Cynthia at? Uh, we were chatting last night at dinner um about having our roots in in journalism, in traditional journalism, and so that's really I mean I wrote as a child and wrote creatively, but uh, at at university and just after after graduating, I worked as a journalist, and so in journalism um, there are all these ob- rules of objectivity that you have to follow. So. Uh, we were chatting about how the first time you speculate on the page with this background, it's like you've committed this grave mortal sin and you're in danger of hellfire. Um, but uh, the, um, the sinning is lovely. We, we, will, we will just say that. So I want to talk about, about this. How, when, how to speculate, um, what it can add Uh, to your writing. We're going to be looking at um, examples. You all have the Sonia Livingston um, essay, The Lady with the Alligator Purse, we'll be chatting about. But I also have some examples we're going to be considering from um, uh, Joanne Beard, um, Hilton Owls, uh, Virginia Woolf, James Baldwin, um, just a, a, a gamut of people to look at this. Um, So I want to begin just by making a a brief comment about nonfiction. I don't want to get into the defining what it is because we would be here all day and um, you all know this already. Um, So I won't delve into that, but I do want to chat very briefly about memory, about the nature of memory, different types of memory and how we remember, because I think it's um, important to help frame this. So CNF, as we know, is a genre that is based on truth, um, not objective truth. Um, It's based on a truth as opposed to the truth, and um, it concerns memory and its nature. It gets to the heart of why and how we remember. So why remember? I think we remember to understand, to discover, to communicate, to preserve. Um, We engage with memory both consciously and subconsciously, to impose order, to create narrative, and to seek memory. We remember to understand what um, Vladimir Nabokov called the individual mystery. And memory is fallible, right? Readers come to memoir knowing this. Any intelligent reader will realize that memoir is not objective, but subjective. Again, it purports to tell a truth, the narrator's personal truth. Brenda Miller and Suzanne Paola say, memory itself could be called its own bit of creative nonfiction. I love that. In other words, memory is a reconstruction, it is not simply a transcription of the past. Um, Sue William Silverman says that it's not a Xerox. Um, for such a thing does not exist, and if it did, it would be simplistic, and it would be boring. Um, memory is associative; it has this non-linear, zigzag nature. There are going to be omissions, gaps, things we don't know, or things that we can't have known. And for the creative nonfiction writer, and particularly the memoirist, this can be frustrating. Many feel as if they have to make this great um, gut-wrenching binary decision. We have to either attempt to write exactly as it was and in doing so create uh, what will inevitably be a thin one-dimensional scene sticking solely to what is remembered or recorded or even worse to not write it at all. Um, to give up and so I think we've all been there um, to some degree that scene from childhood that you can recall with a few uh, recall with a few specific details and maybe a bit of action but there's nothing else and you think oh I can't write this then Um, the date and age of your grandmother when she finally divorced your grandfather you may know that but only the fragments of what motivated her Um, to take action and so you restrict yourself to say well that's all I can write we've all felt frustrated and stymied at the desk we may cry I don't know what actually happened and why it happened and throw our hands in the air we don't have to have to do that there is um, another Avenue I love this quote from Charles Baxter what we talk about when we talk about memory is often what we have forgotten or what has been lost. I'll say that again. What we talk about when we talk about memory is often what we have forgotten or what has been lost. The passion and torment and significance seem to lie in that direction. The passion and torment and significance seem to lie in that direction. In other words, in the direction of what we have forgotten, what we can't know. Baxter's right, what has been lost, both to memory and time, seem to tantalize the memoirist and uh, and readers. We also write to reclaim a past. And in dealing with the past and the people and the stories in it, they're going to be roadblocks of what you can't know. So back to that third option of uh, You have the first of the thin scene, the one-dimensional scene, the second giving up, no, 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 and the third, um, which is what I want to talk about, this other option, a path that if you follow it, can lead, um, lead creative nonfiction writers, lead your work to deeper places of narrative, reflection, and meaning. So this is the speculation, to write what you can't know, to imagine on the page, and to build a fuller, richer, and more textured um, work of art. And to kind of wrap up um, these thoughts on memory, I wanted to list four types of memory that I think we engage in at different points um, in our writing, sometimes right alongside of each other, but sometimes just one. The first is the individual and personal memory. Of course, this is uh, memoir at its heart, the second I think of as, um, as collective memory, um, memory from uh, maybe a, a community um, that's handed down. Historical memory uh, would be part of that and how uh, things have been remembered, why they've been remembered a certain way. Cultural memory um, is, is related to that. And finally, ancestral memory. Is another um, option that we're dealing with in, um, in creative nonfiction. So I want to give you this quote by Judith Kitchen. My challenge as a writer was not to describe, my challenge as a writer was not to describe, but to interact, not to confirm, but to animate and resurrect. In other words, It's not enough to write about something, you have to write from it. It's not enough to write about something, you have to write from it. More on this um, in a a minute. But first, a personal story from me. I grew up, I was born in in 1981, um, and so grew up in this really um, interesting time in southeastern uh, Kentucky. And so, I grew up in this little holler and had two best friends who were right around my same age. We were born months apart. And both of them had full sets of grandparents that they would go and stay with and uh, get presents from on their birthdays and money at Christmas and things like this. And I did not have that. I had one living blood grandparent who lived, um, had moved uh, to Ohio, just outside of Cincinnati. So I kind of had some adopted grandparents in this holler that I grew up in, um, but, uh, but no living blood grandparents. My maternal grandmother had died a year and a half before I was born. She died at the age of 48, and it was a very tragic, sudden, um, unexpected death. She died from a gunshot wound that was ruled suicide, um, but there was speculation and suspicion that um, she might have been have been murdered by um, her husband at the time, um, and so I grew up in this home of seeing her this portrait of her um, hanging on our hallway wall. We all know this Appalachian hallway, right? Of <laughs> of uh, Of all these uh, living and dead family members and so it would be there and I would always wonder about her it would be there and then suddenly it would be gone and then it would be there and it would be gone and it was this back and forth um, moving of this photograph uh, that I came to realize years later my mother was working out her grief on this wall sometimes she would want to see her mother Sometimes she would be comforted by that. Sometimes the sight of her mother was just too, too much for her to handle. But this woman became, this woman who I never knew became this great mystery to me that I wanted to know about, that I wanted to um, understand, that I wish I had met, that I had heard as, as the years went on and people felt more comfortable talking about her, all these different types of stories. Um, that she had. I always felt a connection to her. The day I got my driver's license, my, we never went to her grave because it was just too emotional for my mother. I I knew the cemetery it was in, this big cemetery, and um, did not know where it was at. So the day I got my driver's license, I skipped school and I drove to this graveyard and I found her grave. Um, So I've always felt this connection and um, drawing to her, and when I began to write, I wanted to write about her, Um, and I tried in all these different ways, and it just never worked. I found myself to be too hemmed in by what I had heard from my mother, by what I had heard from my aunt, by my older cousin who was like my older sister who did know her as a child, Um, by the feelings of fear and shame around this story, Uh, by the fact that I didn't know her, that I only knew and had fragments of her. Um, I got into thinking, well, how much of her story is mine to tell? Do I have ownership over her story? How will this impact um, my mother and aunt, who are still dealing with their grief around her? Um, And so there was no way I could find to write about her. So after years and years of trying, I finally found a way um, to engage with her on the page and to write from her, and more specifically from my relationship with her, which had elements of these snippets of information I had gathered, but was largely based on what I imagined she was like, because I had lived these years of having an imagined relationship with her. And in short, I needed to speculate. So I'm gonna read from that essay later um, tonight. Um, but it was, it was liberating for me um, to have that mind shift to think this is not about her. What I'm writing is not going to be about my grandmother. It's going to be from my imagined relationship with her over these years and dealing with um, this ancestral memory uh, of, of someone that I never, I never knew. So, thinking on that, I want to go back to what um, Judith Kitchen uh, said and to think about these three terms. So, interact—not um, describing, but interacting. I needed to interact with my grandmother on the page, and so I ended up writing this essay in second person, as if I were. Um, addressing her, which got at the interaction. Um, Kitchen says that animation is what we must engage in uh, as a writer. So I needed to give her, this word to me speaks of color, right? That's the first thing that I go to. I needed to give her color. I needed her to be complex, three-dimensional. And then finally, and probably most important um, for my purposes, resurrect. Resurrect. I needed to bring her back to life for myself, but in a form that would be recognizable to me. So my grandmother, not the mother or grandmother um, that my mother, aunt, or cousin knew. This would be my version of the woman that I never knew. So interact, animate, resurrect. Um, I would argue that these are, for me at least, three governing principles of writing creative nonfiction and I think all will require speculation and imagination on the page, but wait. So speculation, this dirty word, um, and all these debates in creative nonfiction about how far can you go and these different camps, aren't you encouraging me to lie? Isn't writing what you can't know fiction? Isn't this unethical? What about reliability? So what I would say, speculation is not a factual claim. It's conjecture. It's a theory based on observation, research, and instinct. And instinct is important because to me, this comes after uh, researching your subject or topic, getting to know it, not just... um, shooting off at the hip, immersing yourself. Speculation is at its core an educated guess. So when you write about something, you're giving the reader basic information, the who, what, when, where, why, going back to journalism, the five W's. Um, you have to provide some of this information in CNF, but it's not enough because this is not, again, traditional journalism, not objective. It's subjective, and so you, we have to take the reader Inside the experience and go deeper and allow the reader to inhabit it. Again, you have this goes back to the juxtaposition of writing from something. So, speculation is a vehicle for this. In the case of a character, the speculation can be an attempt to enter their mind, their thoughts, their motivations exploring their behaviors and the reasons behind it. In the case of details that might not be clear about them, about the story, you can speculate on what might have been there to add texture to the scene, to allow the reader to enter the room along with you. We're gonna look at some of these in more detail um, in a moment, Um, but all of this, again, is getting the reader closer Um, to the subject, moving them inside the room. This is not uh, a foreign process to us. This is, speculation is something that we engage in every single day. You think about it. You go and have a drink with a friend, um, and maybe your tongue is loosened a little bit, and you start wondering about another friend and why she's staying with her husband who... You all think maybe a bit of a cad, but they have children and how is this working? What motivates her to stay? You're speculating. You know this character, right? Um, And you may know some facts, but you are putting yourself in their shoes. Um, In doing this, we admit uh, right off the bat that we don't have all the facts. It's not purporting to have all the facts that we are in fact, um, you know, to some degree, outsiders to the situation or the character. But we're also acknowledging our relationship to them, that we know them so well and have observed them, their behavior, that we can make best guesses about the whys and hows. So entering into this is what writer uh, CNF writer Lisa Knopp calls perhapsing. imparting information to the reader um, that does not claim to be factual. What we're talking about is not inventing details or embellishing facts, not lying to the reader. Speculation, I think, is having a dialogue on the page with ourselves as writers and narrators, um, with characters, events, and situations about which we're writing. And it becomes um, kind of uh, an investigation of truth and identity, I think of, um, and options that you can give the reader in which you're the leading detective you're asking questions who am i who is this person what is their relationship Um, what are the struggles of these characters what motivates them so if we do this in our everyday lives why can't we do it on the page um, to bring us into a closer understanding robin himley in his essay the wound of the photograph relates this to daydreaming, um, which if you're a writer and artist, right? We, we daydream, we imagine, we engage in conjecture, we speculate. Um, and so you're inviting the reader again into your thought process, and I think you're inviting them to be uh, active participants to a degree. I wanna send these handouts around, um, and we'll look at those. Actually, let me grab one for myself right off. Sorry. That might help. Um, So, and I think also that if we engage in this and we're upfront and the reader is clued into what we're doing, that um, we can even heighten the trust that we establish with the reader. Um, as a reliable narrator on the page if, if they see what we're doing and if we take them through uh, this process giving them context, context clues um, that uh, that we can engage in this process and um, increase our um, our trust uh, levels of trust so what's going around um, are uh, some examples that I want to point us to and that we can um, read but also a list that is essentially um, benefits of, of speculation um, on the page. So the first benefit that you'll see on the list as it um, makes its way around is uh, character interiority, is getting inside a character's Head and emotions. We know this about characterization, right? Characterization is not just the exterior, the external descriptions, the physical descri- descriptions, body language, etc., of a character. It's getting down into their core, into their motivations, into their likes and dislikes, into their um, behaviors. And so, in creative nonfiction, um, I think that it is. Uh, perfectly fine to speculate about this. I want to uh, point us to this first example from James Baldwin. If I could have somebody volunteer who has the, the sheet already to, to read that for us. Yeah. He could be chilling in the pulpit and indescribably cruel in his personal life. And he was certainly the most bitter man I ever met Yet it must be said that there was something else in him, buried in him, which lent him his tremendous power and even a rather crushing charm. It had something to do with his blackness, I think. He was very black, with his blackness and his beauty and with the fact that he knew that he was black but did not know that he was beautiful. He claimed to be proud of his blackness but it had also been the cause of much humiliation and it had fixed blitz boundaries to his life. Okay, any thoughts on this passage? This is, of course, from um, uh, the essay Notes of a Native Son, which, if you haven't read, do it (laughs) tonight. Any thoughts on this and how it relates to, shows speculation and character, what he's working with?
1: Well, I think that... I think that he's interacting with his father that he's writing about in the sense that you know he's giving the you know specific example of he was the most bitter man that I ever met, but he's speculating in looking at and um, explaining that he did not know that he was beautiful. So he's going into his father's mind and imagining how his father you know could not know this about himself, even though maybe his father did know this, but this is a speculation that follows. I was just going to say, kind of like James Baldwin, as a black man delivering another black
2: man, it's kind of like your experience, it's like understanding yourself as you experience this other man's blackness. And so it's kind of like bringing that together too, that intimacy with his father and then intimacy with his own blackness, um, that creates that kind of interaction and speculation as he gets into his father's own bitterness as a contrast with his black pride.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. This passage to me is at that core of, a, of an intersection of of two characters in this passage. It's not just James Baldwin's father that's being described and written about. This is being filtered through Baldwin's experience as um, as a black man and and walking um, In those shoes and knowing what that's about where is the operative word for the speculation in this passage or words I think right so that's an example to me of when you're when you're writing this out on the page and and you're cluing your reader into uh, this process of what you're doing I think you know he's not purporting this to be the truth about his father because he can't know this. Um, even as close as, um, and their relationship was fractured, but as close as um, a, a son and father relationship is, he still can't know this. So the operative, uh, <clears throat> yes, the operative words in this passage, I think, that clues us into the speculation. So number two, another benefit. Speculation can add texture and richness to a scene. In other words, it can flesh out a scene. And I think this is especially helpful in what I mentioned earlier, these uh, memories from childhood, for example, that are fuzzy and that which we know um, might have been a formative experience or that there is a kernel of truth in uh, that laid a foundation for our lives that we feel compelled to write about but we can't remember exactly what happens. We're tantalized by that individual mystery that Nabokov talks about. Um, And uh, we are riding in the direction of what has been forgotten to go back um, to Baxter. So let's look at Virginia Woolf from her um, unfinished essay uh, memoir, A Sketch of the Past. Anybody care to read that? Larry?
3: The first memory. This was a red and purple flowers on a black ground, my mother's dress. And she was sitting either in a train or in an omnibus, and I was on her lap. I therefore saw the flowers she was wearing very close, and you can still see purple and red and blue, I think, against the black. They must have been anemones, I suppose. Perhaps we were going to St. Ives, more probably were from the light, it must have been the evening. We were coming back to London. But it is more conveniently, convenient artistically to suppose that we are going <laughs> to St. Ives. But that will lead to my other memory, which also seems to be my first memory. And in fact, it is the most important of all my memories. If life has a base that it stands upon, if it is a bowl that one fills and fills and fills, then my bowl, without a doubt, stands upon this memory. It is of lying half asleep, half awake, in bed, in the nursery at St. Ives. So for me,
0: um, you know, this is one of these passages that makes me just want to pack my bags and go back (laughs) to Kentucky um, and just quit this altogether because she is just amazing, um, but what's she doing here, how's she doing it, anyone? I was just wondering if a compilation of like associations like you were mentioning,
3: like it's just kind of like building itself into the other and kind of like leading us into I guess the root of the memory
2: itself, and so it's just kind of like that piling of imagery kind of Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
3: Very truthful about the speculation too. She's like, well, I got to do this. I got to tell you this story. To tell you this story. It, mm-hmm. It's all very, mm-hmm. very transparent. Mm-hmm.
1: It, it feels like we're inside of her head, just going through her stream of
0: consciousness. I think that's why it feels so intimate, because we feel like we're inside of her head as she's recalling it. Yeah. I think you get that even the dreamy sensation of rocking on a train. Yeah. she's yeah. remembering. you know. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, I, I like that the, uh, the power of the passage depends almost entirely on something that she sure isn't true. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, but but it is what's the word she uses convenient, <laughs> because she's writing in this one direction. She has in her mind, you know, the direction in which she wants to take the reader, and so she's like, "Well, here we go." One of the
5: things I love too is. The She modulates distance, like you're sort of smushed into the dress with her as a child. Then she makes that if statement that's so large, like if my life if my life has a base. You know, she's making this huge grand
0: statement. So
5: it's it's arresting in sort of two
0: different ways. It is, and so there's this grand statement, and then it goes. Then she's taken us back down into the nursery where this passage here ends. And what I didn't give you, if anybody knows this essay, is what comes next is the blinds in the nursery and the sounds of the waves. Um, and so it gets, again, very, very intimate. Well, I was just
6: gonna say, she's knitting, because you were
3: speaking of memory before. To me, it's just this image of a quilt, all these different fra- fractal panels. She's. Knitting them together.
0: Yeah. Anybody else? Any thoughts? I think, for me, this is a great example of how you're talking
1: about speculation can heighten the the trust that the reader Mm. has because the fact that she's so strict, she's so honest about, like, I'm pretty sure it was evening, but Mm -hmm. I need it to not be, and therefore it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The fact that she's so honest about that draws me to her, whereas if she had made it morning when it was evening and I found that out
0: later that would have that would have broken me down <laughs> with her yeah and and even if you didn't f- find that out I mean you know this is Virginia Woolf so it's going to be gorgeous writing but t- to me yes how she has done this on the page makes it eve adds to that intimacy yeah. of it um absolutely somebody else has, yeah
7: oh, so- that the patterns in which things occur in real life can be (coughs) essentially meaningless but you can still connect these memories to attempt to try to make sense out of a lot of disparate pieces Mm -hmm. that have uh, connecting threads even if they don't connect chronologically. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes memory is a construction we've talked about and so this is walking us through how she has constructed um, meaning for her life I think. Did you, Devin, did you? No, okay. It's you're, yeah, you're, you're like me. Since you're
2: you did, um, in terms of the distance, she does do something about the nature of life itself, which is even beyond her own personal life. But this bowl, filling and filling, which is a vast metaphysical statement. Yeah. So that gets in there as well.
0: It does. Mm-hmm. It does. All right. We'll, we'll move on from from Miss Wolf, as, as hard as it may be. So three, uh, speculation can uh, give us access to sensory details not remembered. So some of these you'll see on this list and in these examples can bleed over. Um, but for this one, I want us to look at Joanne Beard's um, essay, uh, Werner. Anybody wanna care to read that? The two began to struggle desperately. That's the cat. Werner glanced backward
6: and the bedpost, a foot and a half way, he was gone. The smoke looked oily, looked like oily jello, granular particles swirling all around him. There was no oxygen between the particles now, no way to negotiate anything out of it. The opposite in face, if air equals life, then non-air equals death. But this was a step beyond. It was non-air with poison. In the soft, strangled moment that followed, another thought burst loose and hung there, pale inside the black swirling
0: column. He would have to jump. Has anyone read this essay, this piece? So it is, if anybody wants to, I highly recommend it. It is in the 2007 uh, Best American Essays. And so what she does, it's all written um, in... In third person but also in in the mind of um, the title character who uh, lives in New York comes home at night settles into bed and in the middle of the night is awakened by this fire that is consuming his whole um, apartment building and so she is in his head most of um, the time so what we know is that she interviewed him but when you read this essay you read it and you're like this is not something he would have said in an interview he would not have been this detailed yeah he might have said this but not that so this piece in other words um this excerpt i think is one of the examples of how she goes into his head and extrapolates and speculates on what she has encountered with him um, in the interview, um, anybody see something like that in this piece where that might have been departure, where it might be speculation? You sense.
4: I think maybe
2: when she's um, describing the smoke and what it looked like, I don't know that someone may have gone into that detail,
1: just that it was thick and choking maybe mm-hmm. in an interview and then it would be her responsibility to, to describe that and really make the reader live in it. I think maybe we can get the, the particular details of speculation from
7: that. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, kind of reminded of a quote from uh, Salas, uh, the Roman historian uh, who said that it is harder to write history um, than to make it? Because in making history, you simply have to perform the actions that will be remembered. But in writing history, not only do you have to recount them, but you have to present them in such a way to do justice to the
0: deed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. She gets you know very specific in this piece about him looking at the bed post. Maybe he has said this in his interview, but. That's a detail where I'm like, so you looked at the bed post rather than, I don't know, there's something something there that she has gone um, gone farther. So anyway, s- sensory details that may not necessarily be remembered. Um, action. Uh, let's look at the Maxine Hong Kingston piece. Um, and this is taken from, um, Lisa Knopp uses this when I talked about her perhapsing. She uses this as an example. Anybody care to read? Uh, Becky. Perhaps she had encountered
1: him in the fields or on the mountain where the daughters-in-law collected fuel. Or perhaps he first noticed her in the marketplace. He was not a stranger because the village housed no strangers.
0: She had to have dealings with him other than sex. Perhaps he worked in an adjoining field or he sold her the cloth for the dress she sewed and wore. His demand must have surprised then terrified her. She obeyed him. She always did as she was taught. So, this is from the opening essay in, um, in The Woman Warrior, which is all about this uh, story about her aunt, of which she had little, if any, details. She had, you know, this um, very uh, basic outline of the situation that happened with her aunt. But she writes this whole essay, um, and this is a passage in which. She speculates about um, about what might have happened in this situation, and what's the word that she keeps using in this piece to clue into the reader? Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. perhaps. A Doris Day song. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Any thoughts on this piece? What do, what does this give you um, in terms of 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 action or details? Or anything else we haven't got to on the list. Well, I haven't read this essay so I noticed that
1: there's nothing in here that's not speculation. Mm -hmm. I I don't know anything that she's presenting as hard fact, other than I can I can surmise that there was sex since Mm -hmm. we're speculating as to something other than sex, but
0: even that's sort of off the page. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, she
5: obeyed
1: him she always did what she was told mm-hmm. and I think that's where
0: a lot of the speculation comes from mm-hmm. so she yes absolutely so she may have had this snippet of a claim um, from her mother's relation about the character of her aunt and her motivations and what she was like and so from that snippet of information she has gone into the bowels of of this story to flesh it out and to get in there Perhaps, maybe it was this maybe it was that and given us, given the reader options, I think, to get into um, what what caused this, uh, this relationship. Um, number five, suspense. Speculation can help build um, suspense. If we uh, look back, I don't have a specific one uh, for this, but I want to point us back to uh, the Joanne Beard um, excerpt. And that whole essay is just an exercise in suspense building in CNF on the page. It propels you forward, it keeps you going, and she is so close um, and in his head about these details that some of which he has undoubtedly mentioned in interviews and some of which she has seen him as a character um, and gotten inside his head, that she has used those to build um, the suspense, um, complexity, speculation can uh, can add complexity to a piece. We I want to point you back in in this uh, example to uh, to notes of a native son to the Baldwin excerpt. That whole essay, for, for everyone who knows it, is such a rich, complex essay. I teach that in every CNF class, um, and there's always I've read this you know, dozens of times, and there's always something new um, that I discover. And it's because uh, he doesn't, you know, just say, well, my father was an asshole, right? And write from revenge and talk about how, you know, he tried to make me be uh, a child preacher. He didn't want me to, um, to be tutored by, uh, by a white teacher. Uh, he didn't allow me access to this. Um, no, he gives us, he engages with that, but it is uh, in a very complex way. He has the distance necessary to write this, um, and he's investigating uh, and speculating on on why it was so. Um, Another benefit, speculation can be a way around dealing with an imperfect and incomplete memory. We've talked about this with um, Virginia Woolf. Uh, Number eight, it can be an alternate way of providing historical context for notable figures and family members alike. It can aid, in other words, in reconstructing or to go back to Judith Kitchen, resurrecting these lives. So let's look at um, Hilton Owls, the excerpt from his essay, Michael, uh, which is about Michael Jackson. Anybody care to read that for us? Yeah.
1: Good. After Ben, the metaphors Michael Jackson used to express his difference from his family became ever more elaborate and haunting. There was this brilliant turn as an especially insecure, a thief, and at times masochistic scarecrow in Sidney Lumet's 1978 film version of the Broadway hit, The Wiz, there was his appropriation of Garland's later style, the sparkly black Judy in concert jacket, during the 1984 <coughs> Victory Tour, his last performances with his brothers, whose costuming made them look like intergalactic superheroes. And there was there were the songs he wrote for women, early idols like Diana Ross or his older sister, Rebby, songs that expressed what he could never say about his own desire. She said she wants a guy to keep her satisfied, But that's all right for her, but it ain't enough for me, Jackson wrote in the 1981 Diana Ross hit Muscles. The following year, Jackson wrote Centipede, which became Rebby Jackson's signature song. It begins, your love is like a raging fire, oh, you're a snake that's on the loose, the strike is your desire. In bars like the Starlight and later, in primarily black and Latin gay dance clubs like the Paradise Garage on Manhattan's Lower West Side, the meaning was clear. Michael Jackson was most himself when he was someone other than himself.
0: Thoughts on this? What does this give us? Uh, I kind of like use Michael Jackson as a segue to discuss
2: like something personal. But I guess it's kind of like we were going for with the historical content, like mm-hmm. just building up into like um, I don't know. It kind of helps bridge, I guess whatever is missing or actually calls attention to it. Mm-hmm. Than people are like, oh, Michael Jackson, let's let's read into it. So I guess that's another, I guess, a, a way to build
0: focus on a particular mm-hmm. topic this person wants to talk about. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely build and focus. Anybody else?
1: Was most himself when he was someone other than himself, and maybe this narrator feels like they're
0: the most himself when they're writing about Michael Jackson. Okay. Very. A mm-hmm. so, yeah. Anyone else? Other
4: thoughts? Well, um, it does stick out to me when I when I read this excerpt compared to some of the other ones we've read that there is, I mean, there's not really in. I mean, there's not any perhaps. There's not really I, any I. I think here, here, there, and then this excerpt for things that. Obviously, I'm clearly speculative, and I guess I just wonder how my uh, I, this part of me wonders if that do, if that ultimately does make a difference. Because some, I, I, I'll admit, and maybe it's not even this, but I'll, I'll admit there are times when I have where it's someone being speculative, and they're not say, prefacing it by saying perhaps or I, I think, where I'm just like, well, that seems like you know, like an, like quite an assumption, right, 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 mm-hmm. right, right there. So I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I do kind of wonder if that might make a difference just having that, that <coughs> one that's been meant that you could be, that this is just, uh, you, this is just speculation, mm-hmm.
0: basically. Yeah, there's no overt context clue um, in this piece, but I think it is pretty clear what what um, he's doing. He's, you know, using snippets gathered from from Jackson's lyrics and also what what is not on the page here is from this wide body of knowledge that he has about Jackson's life and behavior and perceptions and personal relationship, how he identifies um, with him that he's all bringing to the table. Um, so it, yes, he's absolutely making an assumption and it's in that last, uh, that last um, sentence. So that leads us, it's a good segue to um, the ninth benefit that I've listed, uh, to flesh out the historical record. There's some overlap between the two, but I want to differentiate this um, a bit and maybe not make it so, um, you know, singular person uh, focused. Um, So we're going to talk briefly about Sonya Livingston's The Lady with the Alligator Purse in a moment. Has anyone read her essay um, that was published uh, in, in Brevity called A Thousand Mary Doyles? Because it is gorgeous. So just uh, a sidebar, I think she's one of the finest essayists working today, and I know she's she's been here. Um, but, but her essay, A Thousand Mary Doyles, um, best I recall, does not have the context clue, but it's this brief essay in which she is conjuring and writing the experience of um, Irish women who, in, who immigrated um, here to the States and talking about this grand kind of um, collective e- experience um, of, of all these women. And so the whole essay is, um, is a speculation. It's based on... Research that she's obviously done about about individuals about the um, Irish immigrant experience uh, but um, it, it's, it's a collective imagining um, And speculating rather than a singular one. So I would urge everybody to um, to read that uh, Number 10 linkages can it can provide linkages or motivations for events and characters. Let's look at um, Karen McElmurray's excerpt from Surrendered Child. Any wanna read that?
1: I want to believe it was for the best. My mother growing up believing in the attenuated glory of God and food, how it could save us, redeem us. I tell myself I can see her, the girl, when she used to believe. I can see her listening to the radio, to Frank Sinatra and Pat Boone, to songs about promised love, love and its salvation. I believe that's what she thought about in church when the music rose. Just as I am without one plea, they sang, but that thy blood was shed for me. She did not yet know about a marriage night, her own blood being shed. She watched the choir, the open mouths praising glory. She was empty, waiting to be filled, and that sent her forward, down the long aisle, saved. She wanted that, wanted God and the man who would love her, both of them touching her secretly in the night.
0: Impressions of this? Any responses? What do we get from her speculation? Information about the narrator. How so? okay wants to believe about her mother and um, we know from context here that it would relate to their relationship so this goes this is an echo in other words this uh, can be seen as the the feminine echo of of the Baldwin um, excerpt here so about about mother-daughter providing um, linkage anybody else notice anything that her marriage should be filled with the same love and light that she gets in church from her marriage. That's what women were supposed to believe. Mm-hmm. That it's an extension of the Godhead, that it is a divine, holy, sacred state.
5: One thing they notice in this one and in the earlier ones is that often after a while they shave off the the, the sort of uh, roadmap signs of, of this as I think or suppose mm-hmm. or perhaps and at the end they're just declaratives. So mm-hmm. She wanted this, she saw this. We know we're still within <clears throat> within the, the imagined scene, but you don't need to sort of overdo the, Right, the, the
0: over, over egg the pudding. Mm-hmm. No. Absolutely. Anybody else before we move on? Okay, so 11, it can show speculation contrasts such as changes in assumptions due to newly discovered evidence. Anyone care to read that last example from J.R. Ackerley's memoir?
4: I first projected this memoir some 30 years ago when I was seeking information about my father's early life, I applied to Arthur Stockton, his partner and lifelong friend, then a man of 73. One of his letters to me contains the following sense. I suppose he, the could cannot help his intensely jealous nature. There's no cause of him bringing an action against your father over the cell farm, just because of the Louise incident. However, he lost the action and had to pay the costs, which made me quite frantic. The case I afterwards discovered is reported at some length in the, the time of July 21st, 1892. My father was the plaintiff, and must therefore have brought the action judgment was uh, judgment to the defendant, the count. It true he was out of the costs. It seems the only accuracy in Stockley's statement.
0: Okay. So, lots of information here. This, as an aside, this memoir is. Is, is fascinating and is an exploration of uh, the narrator's relationship with his father, but after his father dies he discovers this trail of secrets that get to the heart of his father's character that his father had um, a whole other family that they didn't know about and that his father was, um, was bisexual. And so this was, re- this was uh, written in Edwardian England. Um, so anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating book, but you see what he's doing here, right? He's juxtaposing. He's using um, the, the earlier speculation um, that had gone on from a different character to lead the reader to show a contrast, to show um, a discovery. So just the few others. Um, benefit of speculation can add layers of meaning. Um, you know, this is what we have to aim for in, in writing and in writing creative nonfiction is layers is going beyond the obvious meaning and going deeper. Writing to discover rather than just having a destination in mind. Um, so the discovery on the page speculation can can show um, can be a shift in perspective and looking at things another way. I think the Ackerley piece shows that a way to build trust with the reader and reliability. We saw that with Virginia Woolf in A Sketch of the Past. And then finally for reflection. Speculation can deepen the reflective voice, which we know is a necessity in writing memoir and in writing creative nonfiction, is you have the show, the narrative that pushes you forward, um, the action that's taking place, but in creative nonfiction, that's not enough. You have to take a step back and also tell. You have to, um, to reflect. On the event and uh, what it taught you, the understanding you got um, to provide that uh, for for the reader. Um, any questions about that before we think about Sonia Livingston's essay, "The Lady with the Alligator Purse"? All right. Any initial thoughts on this essay? Yes.
6: I think it says a lot about um women's images. Especially about uh, Susan B's appearance. I, I don't know, I just really
0: thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the essay kind of hinges, right, on this on this construction of image, on um not only why Susan B. Anthony's remembered, but how she's remembered, um and and perhaps for why she is remembered that way. Yeah. Mhm. Stern. stern. Sour.
5: It's Almost like a pair of portrait too because it's also the narrator saying like I'm a pleasure lover, you know. Mm-hmm. Sort of, yeah. I'm, and I wonder if you were too. You know, it's mm-hmm. a little play um in that back and forth. Yeah. Like, trying to see her as a mirror almost. But,
0: yeah. So. Yeah, as a mirror, as a reflection and Lots of play in here and going back to those four types of memory that I um, listed, you know, she is dealing with an individual um, memory that she has of Susan B. Anthony, but also with this collective and cultural memory that we have of, of this woman who was on this disastrous piece of currency. That, you know, I grew up I was born five years after it was produced and, you know, my family had a, a whole little jar of them that they didn't know what to do with. Or they didn't want to do anything with. Yeah. I thought it was really cool how
1: on page eighteen towards the bottom she's Talking to the other woman, who you know knows so much about Susan B. Anthony, she says, "How do you know? How can you possibly know?" And she's kind of setting us up for how we're going to be looking at her perspective yeah. and how she's
0: talking about Susan B. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was a really neat. And copy. and what are the woman's words? Um,
1: Trust me, Miss Susan had herself some good times. Yes. <laughs>
0: Trust me. <laughs> Trust me, right? This gets at that notion of the reliability of the narrator, but she's also, Livingston has also taken us on this journey, right? We know that that she knows about Susan B. Anthony, right? We know that she's researched her. It's obvious from reading this piece. And so this is an example of that instinctual speculation. That I think that I think speculation has to come from is from study, is from observation, um, and that it comes from it comes from the guts. It comes from living with someone, uh, friend, family, or cultural figure, um, that you, you know them well enough to say this is this is probably what happened. And trust me, yes, that's what that's that's what she's doing. It's a claim. Anyone else? What kinds of speculations and where did you see it being used? So maybe thinking about our list.
7: last paragraph where she's uh, speculating about who was ending up with uh, the Susan B. Anthony costume. Uh, I feel like that speculation's uh, doing a couple things. For one, it's uh, just giving us a little bit more context or detail, which is fine. But I also feel that it's Meant to set up this uh, sort of aversion towards Susan B. Anthony, which is kind of later exacerbated, where she's talking about how uh, Dolly Madison reminded her of, of Apple Pie. So you're creating the sort of disparity here um, of a suffragette that's got this uh, apparent uh, appearance or aversion towards her character versus uh, Dolly Madison, who I most famously remember for uh, rescuing.
0: She a, saved uh, the White House. She said, character. yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, poor Susan B. Anthony, nobody wants to be her. She would be the last person picked for the basketball team. And yeah, so, so she's, uh, she's obviously setting this up, this, this stern image. And if you notice in this piece, there's a recurring word that's used, um, soft. So then it gets at these dual um, images of, of female identity, this binary.
2: Somewhere there's a memory of when I was reading about Seneca Falls years and years ago about the meetings and the rustle of silk that Mm -hmm. you could hear in the room because these were women
0: Mm -hmm.
2: going with that soft. Oh yeah, that's lovely. That was the phrase. That's lovely.
0: (laughs) I'll be thinking about that all day. That's lovely. Any other instances that you saw that you noticed? Yes.
1: Anywhere. And I love that because mm-hmm. it's this immediate signal. It's perhaps and I imagine and I wonder. And giving yeah. us that specific language.
0: Yes, and I think and I believe. She also asked questions. There was there's this one passage, um let's see here what page it's on. Um, on twenty three, right before the section break, in which um, it gets at this refracted mirror image that Jesse pointed out, the Susan versus Sonia thing. Um, To willingly turn from something great, tasting for something bitter, but good for you demonstrates an uprightness not of my world so that I begin to wonder if this uh, penchant for pleasure is more my problem than Susan B's, who admittedly cares little either way, so why do I? Did she fear pleasure or do I fear its opposite? The tight bun, mouthful of greens, all backbone and resolution. What becomes of women without pink skin and soft smiles? What happens when I stop seeking out the sweet and every last thing? So even in this, this is perhapsing, right? These questions are, um, are the speculation. Yeah. But yes, signals throughout, throughout the piece.
6: She almost wants to rewrite history says, <coughs> if only we'd known that she was the lady with the alligator purse, mm. if only we'd been told that she was the earwig son of since we first learned to sing, all the hands clapping and laughter, the rhyme itself becoming part of our bones, oh Susan, how the lot of us would have battled to be you." Mm. And it's almost wanting to rewrite that and, you know, without saying perhaps, she's looking back on what
0: could have been, and I think that was really powerful in this piece. And what could have been? Susan B. Anthony wouldn't have been, you know, the last person picked, mm-hmm. right? She would have been clamoring for her, for, people would have been clamoring to be her um, if this one piece of information, and this broader, uh, better and deeper understanding of her would have been, would have been known. Yeah, absolutely.
5: do she waits to, to use a second person in the essay. You know, after a while, you, she just gets intimate with her. Yeah. <laughs> so I like that she's kind of in and out of that, but she, you know, she gets more and more intimate at the end so that she's in the car with her
0: mm-hmm. and we're going to the place, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Larry?
3: I like these little vignettes you know, and how she can skip the stone across as many things as she wants to in this short period of time. Um, I like the pastors where she starts out. It's not a stretch to it's not a stretch to imagine that she ate all her vegetables. Yeah. As yeah. mm-hmm. a segue into such a strict household where they were talking such such serious things at such an early age and refusing her dolls and toys.
0: Yeah. You know. Yeah, and again this is going back to playing with her image, with, with um Susan B. Anthony's image and also with uh, with the narrator. I live on twenty six. Um just before and after the section break, um, how she engages in speculation here. What would she think of the Hillary Nutcrackers, Susan B? Once she got over the shock of air travel and prepackaged peanuts, perhaps she'd saddle up to the bar, order a pint and laugh over the Hillary Nutcrackers as I could not. But no, I don't suppose Susan would make use of the airport bar. She worked for Temperance after all. And it goes... On and on and on so I love how she's using the speculative here but then she's circling back around and refuting it and so it's going back to um, this play of myth versus fact of projected image um, of, of, of her hopes of and this you know gets into the personal nature of this essay of the narrator's personal hopes and, and images for Susan B but then she at this point has to take a step back and say well I can't go that far because the historical record is pretty firm in this in this place so I like how she's she's doing that.
6: Um, I also really like um, the piece at the very bottom of this page on 26 um, where they um, said said that they made themselves into beautiful nags because it's talking a lot about and like they mentioned, it's mentioned that she's very plain. And today, when we think of mag, But we always think of like uh, ugly girls. And mm-hmm. I just think that that's, that's really neat,
0: the use of that. Used that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. How does speculation add to the layers of this piece? Another way to think of it is what would this piece be without the speculative?
3: <laughs> it would be a, kind of a transcript,
7: basically a historical transcript, and this 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 makes her almost come to life in a three D kind of mm-hmm. like you know. I had I, I at the end I stopped and I thought, damn, how nice it would be to go on a drive with Susan B. The things we could talk about.
0: Yeah, I um I taught this essay. Uh, just after the election and so it was an interesting discussion um, around the campaign and around uh, the image of women and our first uh, female nominee um, who's mentioned in this in this piece but you know my, st- my students just latched on to the whole binary there of the stern and soft and um, not much in between and then the voting and so yeah, and they were putting themselves in the car on the way to the polls. It was what they were thinking um, in November, but all right. Moving on from sadness mm-hmm. and, de- and, and despair. I was in, I'm still in the middle of, um, of a new book and I was go- oh, going so headstrong into the fall and then um, I could not write for three months. So, um, how to speculate. Let's, uh, I'll uh, give, give um, a couple of tips of, of how to do this, which we've mostly talked about and then leave you with an exercise. Um, so one, to restate. Base your speculation on research and instinct. Don't make it up out of whole cloth or based on a far-fetched notion or shooting from the hip. Spend time, if it's with a character or an event, spend time reading, listening um, about that and getting to know the people. Remember your bond of trust with the reader. one option, which we've talked about, is make readers a participant in the process using these signal words and phrases, which we've covered. Perhaps, maybe, suppose, imagine, I wonder, what if, apparently. Um, I, when, when you use a phrase like, I think, to me that implies an invitation. It implies um, a question, an invitational question, don't you, right? It, it draws the reader in, so that's one strategy. Um, three, be aware that speculation can actually enhance your reliability by making it clear to the reader what you're doing. She's more likely to trust your judgment and abilities. Four, sometimes the signal phrases are unnecessary because it's implied. Um, the Hilton Owls piece that we talked about um, again, Sonya Livingston's essay, A Thousand Mary Doyles. It's, in that piece, it's ob- very obvious out the, at the outset that she is speculating on this communal nature of these, these thousands of, of Irish women. So the reader is in on what she's doing from the beginning. Um, five views only as necessary. Um, consider if it's helping you to, in the words of Judith Kitchen, interact, animate, and... Um, and resurrect. So we don't have um, enough time for uh, the exercise, but I want to give it um, to to you all um, to to do on your own if you like. And it's one that I've adapted from um, from one by Judith Kitchen and combined it with um, an exercise from um, Anne Shelby, who is an Eastern uh, Kentucky um, essayist. and and poet, and I was in her workshop um, a number of years ago and got a nice little essay actually about my grandmother, a separate um, one from the one I was talking about. Um, So it is, recall a family photograph that you hold dear, one that's become iconic to you. So we all have these, right? So an iconic uh, photo. It's one that you've committed to memory, one that you don't have to look at, that you know so well, um, that you can just, it's, you don't have to have it in front of you. So spend a few minutes describing this photo, um, talking about the clothing, the people, their expressions, maybe the quality of the photo, the tones, the colors, if, if it is in color, the shadows. Um, And then when you hit the wall, when you um, no longer have maybe a story or a memory, memory to rely on or to relate it to, enter the speculative, enter the precise moment of the photograph, imagine its context, conjure the mood, what was happening just before the shutter clicked, what occurred just after. What might the characters have been dealing with that morning or during that specific season in their lives? You've described maybe the, their expression, so now talk about what lies behind them, what lies behind their eyes. So in other, in other words, write what you can't know, the speculation and the truth. Any questions?
7: So it sounds like this
0: should be a photo that we weren't there for. Yeah. One that you weren't there for or that maybe I think it works best if you're not there for it, or one that maybe you were but you can't remember the details. Maybe it's from childhood. Any questions? All right, thank you.